doubt whether Jesus is someone to follow or not. In other words, to use a scriptural term, they want to walk by see that the first parable Jesus tells them is the parable of the sower. And then as our text makes clear, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? They're talking about the crowds here. And Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to man it has not. word at work when King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it's and it's tearing him to pieces and nobody can tell him what the dream means. And so he asks Daniel, can you interpret this dream? And Daniel says, no wise men, no astrologers, no whatever you want to call them can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is. secrets of the kingdom of heaven to the disciples to know and not to the crowds of people. But the longer answer is found in verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what is good and good since the quoting Psalm 78 there, written by Asaph the seer. And Matthew is basically saying that Jesus has precedent to this from what we see in Psalm 78, where the psalmist looked back over Israel's history and clarified through parables the meaning of God's marvelous works of salvation for His people so that they would learn from what had happened in their history and not be rebellious toward God and His will for them. As Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, many of the things in Israel's history happened to them as a warning, Paul says. Then he says that they were written down for our instruction. This is why when we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, it makes sense to come to some kind of understanding of what that Old Testament text is all about. Because it was written down for your instruction and for my instruction. Matthew is quoting Psalm 78, verse 2, to show that Jesus is doing something similar to what the psalmist did in his day and time. In other words, Jesus is doing Israel a service in the same way because he's revealing within his parables for those who have ears to hear the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that have been hidden since the beginning of time. And the crowds, because of their wishy-washiness, get very little from the parables. But 
it's because they remain unresponsive. It's because they refuse to take a leap of faith. And we can see something really important right here. If you don't remember anything else today, you need to remember this. If the gospel message is to bless Scripture mentions faith over and over again, but especially because of the teaching that we find in Hebrews 4. Because in that chapter, the writer is talking about, guess who, the rebellious children of Israel under Moses, and then he says, good news came to us just as it did to the children of Israel, but the message which they heard did not benefit them. Because when we talk about faith like this, the really important thing is the object of our faith. It's not how much faith we really have, because Jesus said, if you have the, a tiny faith, just like the seed of a mustard seed, you can do great things. Now, back in the 12th chapter of this gospel, Jesus has already made it clear that there's against me. There's no middle road. The people who make up the crowd must make a decision, and the parables are designed to force the issue. You know, at the end of the parable of the Savior, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. And He said that because it's only in hearing and obeying the truth that your heart and my heart are given over to the kingdom and its rule, which will ultimately lead to our being more like Christ, conforming to His image, as Scripture tells us, is our faith of sanctification. Now, in our sermon two weeks ago, when Zechariah 9 was quoted by Matthew, I told you that Matthew would expect his Jewish readers to know the rest of that prophecy and to understand its pertinent points. And that would ring true for this quotation today. Matthew quotes only one verse out of Psalm 78. I almost read Psalm 78 right here, but it's a long time. It's a long time. But, but Matthew would expect his Jewish readers to be familiar with this psalm it was a well-known psalm, we believe, because it appears that it was used at some of the major festivals. And while he quotes uh, verse 2 because it mentions the word parable, it pays to look at the rest of the psalm to see what's really being communicated. And this psalm, as I've already indicated, reviews Israel's religious history and what God 
generations, and as it does this, it keys on two main things. The fact that even though Israel has been unfaithful at times, that God has always remained faithful and is in fact their rock and redeemer. But even more importantly, he has prepared a redeemer for Israel. And if you look at the parables in this 13th chapter as a whole, in some of them you'll see that same can also see the same basic themes in Psalm 78 that we see in God's works in the New Testament. I mean, just think about how God saved Israel from slavery, from the land of Egypt, uh, delivered them, if you will, and God does the same thing in Israel. Saves us from slavery, slavery to sin delivers us through His Son whom He sends into the world to live a perfect life and have that perfect life sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and so that we might live eternally with God. And we can see the same perplexing interplay or encounter between the grace of God on the one hand and the sin of mankind on the other in the good news of the gospel which really, when you think about it, is, is ultimately beyond our understanding. I mean, why is God showing love to us? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, the only answer we can give is that God loves us that much, but we can't understand that kind of love because we don't have that kind of love. like Psalm 78, the gospel has within it both good news and a warning. It offers hope, and that's certainly good news, but it also tells us about the reality of death for those who are not in Jesus Christ. But especially this first part of Psalm 78 emphasizes the wonders and work that God has done and the importance of telling all of this to the coming generations, not just one generation, but to the coming generations. I think you can see practically four generations mentioned in that psalm. This is so important for the life of the church, for the life of this church. In an article through the Gospel Coalition, Ken Keller talks about how the mistakes made by one Christian generation are magnified in the next. And then he gives the example of those in New England. Nearly all of the settlers who came to New England in the early 17th century, and I'm talking the period between 1620 and 1640, were strong biblical Christians. But by 1662, the first generation realized that several of their children and grandchildren were no longer like them. They were basically believers in name only. In fact, they had to initiate what they called a halfway covenant, allowing people to vote who were baptized as infants but were no longer what we would call the church members. 
what's going on in their world and, and how God's at work. And that leads us to the third thing, and that is to give our testimony personally, which means we don't simply speak about what we believe and, 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 and how we act because of those beliefs, but we also talk about what God has done in our lives, how He's been specific answers to prayer that we'd seen when we needed Him so desperately. Now to His faithfulness. Mark 6, 17. And be patient. And be patient. And all of this becomes who we are so that we set our hope in God and therefore we don't forget His work. is so important because as Spurgeon puts it, as we sow, S-O-W, as we sow toward our children, so shall we reap. And of course, Spurgeon is just quoting that spiritual principle that we find in both Testaments that you reap what you sow. And that principle is so visible in our children and what happens or fails to happen in their lives. The psalmist is pushing for this sowing into the next generations for what he describes as a twofold reason. The first is the most important, so that God will be praised. It's all about the glorious deeds of the Lord, His might, the wonders that He has done. But then we see another reason, which is not turned so much toward God, but toward you and me. It's there in verse 7 in Psalm 78 that they should set their hope in Him. As Paul puts it in Romans 15, whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we 